Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading from Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. We're working through, once again, this Advent season, Songs of Advent. We are meditating on popular Christmas carols over the centuries. Christmas carols, and what we're doing is we're tracing the themes in those carols back to passages in the Bible that had inspired them. And today's Today's carol is an old German carol around, around the 1500s, early 1500s, uh, called Lo, How a Rose Ear Blooming. And, and in the original German, which I can't do, uh, it was, uh, the title was something like this, How a Rose Has Sprung Up. And actually, the 1609 musical arrangement by Michael Praterius has been virtually unchanged in 500 years. That is really rare for a, for a hymn or a Christmas carol. I mean, a, a lot of these songs, they, they undergo textual changes century after century, new translations, added verses, um, and, and the music changes a lot too. But, but in this one, the music is so marvelous, it's so beautiful that virtually nothing has changed in, in the notation, in, in, in the parts and the harmonizations in, in over 400 years. It's pretty remarkable. And actually, what the carol does, we sang it a little earlier, uh, if you were following, uh, it really compares the incarnation, right? The incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth uh, by the Virgin Mary, it compares that event to an unlikely rose springing up from the cold ground in the dark of winter. As just, just a few of the lines say, and I'll just share a couple of them with you. Lo, how a rose ear blooming from tender stem hath sprung of Jesse's lineage coming as men of old have sung. It also goes on to sing, Isaiah twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. You probably know, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know of some of the famous Christmas passages in the prophet Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 7, verse
Verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's a famous one. Or Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Those are some famous passages. A less famous passage from Isaiah is the one we're going to look at today. We're beginning in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He said, there shall, come forth from the, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That may make very little sense to you or to me, but to the people who heard that for the very first time, it was a really big deal because they were living through some dark days. Now, speaking of dark days, the year 2020 has given us a lot to grieve about. And it's probably given us a lot to complain about. And the winter months are upon us, aren't they? The days are getting darker. The days are getting shorter. We're being cooped up even more, even more than we have been all year. Bringing a year of plague and civil unrest to a foreboding, a foreboding close. But the message of Advent, right, which basically means to come. Jesus came. And he's coming again. The message of Christmas, light breaking into darkness, is really our hope. That sounds simple, and that's what you need to hear now. The message of Christmas is our hope. Christmas speaks bright hope to us in our darkest despair. That's really what was going on when the angel came to Joseph and the angel came to Mary. And the angel choir sang to the shepherds out there in the wilderness. That's what this was about. It was about bright hope at the bleakest moment. And that's what was happening in Isaiah's day as well. And so I want to talk to you about Isaiah's hope in bleak circumstances. And then how that translates to us, what the Christian hope is. And then finally, the hope of the world, which is what it comes down to. Isaiah's hope the Christian's hope, if you follow Jesus, and if you don't, I hope that you will see how important that hope is. And then finally, the hope of the world. Now Isaiah's hope pointed to a time beyond the bleakness of what he and his countrymen and his neighbors saw. The current situation at the end of the 8th century BC in the southern kingdom of Judah looked pretty disappointing and ominous. Uh, the king reigning at the time, there are about four kings uh, that, that span uh, the length of Isaiah's long ministry as a prophet. Uh, currently, when Isaiah writes this, uh, the, the king on the, on the throne in Judah is Ahaz. Ahaz was... Um, actually, you can find out about Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And if you go back in Isaiah to chapter 7, you'll learn a bit about King Ahaz. He was basically one of Judah's several lousy kings. And, and, and he was kind of like one of the really big lousy. He was kind of the first of the real lousy ones. Uh, basically, when Judah was attacked by a coalition of small neighboring nations, Ahaz flinched. You can read about this in the Old Testament. He flinched, and instead of, instead of trusting in Isaiah's counsel to wait on God, to not do anything, uh, to not act immediately, but to wait on the Lord to provide a solution for the military danger, he flinched and he ran and begged the king of Assyria for help. 
He went to Tiglath-Pelezer and he begged for help and that cost him and it cost the entire nation because he basically had to drain the treasury. He had to send gifts, gifts, gifts. He gave up a lot of assets to the Assyrians. And he went to Damascus where the, the Assyrians were uh, because they decided to come and help. And not only did he give them a lot of Judah's money, but he even adopted as, as a submissive servant king who had just begged for help, he adopted some of their religious practices and he brought those back to Jerusalem. He adopted the practices of the Assyrians and their pagan religion, and he adopted the practices of even the Syrians in Damascus. And what he did, he came back to Jerusalem and he had the temple in Jerusalem remodeled. Just think about how important the way the temple was set up according to the, the law of Moses was for the ancient Israelites. He had the temple in Jerusalem remodeled after what he saw in Damascus. And he went ahead and began to worship the gods of the surrounding nations as a result. And he even sacrificed his own sons to those gods. So, so when Ahaz died in 715 B.C., around that time, one scholar said he left a legacy of appeasement and syncretism that up until that time were unmatched. So this king's policies, and more than his policies, his character, who he was as a person, almost destroyed the nation and almost destroyed the royal line. At a time when the ruthless, arrogant Assyrian empire was a looming threat not too far off. And so Isaiah now records God's response to this disappointing king and this disappointing situation. Isaiah says the words of the Lord, the first two verses of our passage today, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now the fact that Isaiah is using a word like stump means that things looked really bad. You look at a tree stump, right, it's evidence that the tree is gone. <laughs> the life that was there, the beauty that was there, especially if it was a big tree, it's gone. And so the fact that he's talking about a stump here, a stump of the royal line of kings, this is a huge problem. It looks like it's almost over. But the fact that he's talking about a shoot that comes forth from that stump. The fact that he's talking about a branch that comes out of the roots of what looks like something that was formerly a tree, that shows him, that shows the Israelites, even King Ahaz, that there is still hope despite what things look like. Uh, we still, we cut our Christmas trees down. We go to Christmas tree farm. We even have a family tradition. We lick the stump. It's a lot of fun. Just tastes like pine and yucky sap. But it's fun. We do it. But when you're looking at that tree stump, the tree's not there anymore. It's a mess. There's, there's, there's sawdust shavings all around it. Just looks hopeless. But if you leave a stump long enough, what's going to happen? Something's going to grow. If you really don't want the tree there for good, you've got to remove the stump. You've got to get rid of the root system. And what, what the Lord was revealing to, it, to Judah through Isaiah was that as bleak as things look, I am going to do something that you can't even imagine, that you can't even prepare for, that you have no idea. 
And the fact that he's using the name Jesse here is really critical. Because he's, he's not saying just some other king is going to come along, the next king, 10 kings from now, 15 kings from now. Then he's saying Jesse because what he's saying is another David. Because Jesse's son is David. And he's saying here that another David is going to rise up. And what does he say about this, this future king? He says that this king will have the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of the living God will indwell this leader. And through the Spirit of God, this leader will have everything that he needs to be the perfect king. He says wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and something Ahaz didn't have, the fear of the Lord. And something that no king truly had, his delight would be in the fear of the Lord. He would delight in the Lord. Unlike Ahaz in his foolishness, unlike the Assyrian king in his arrogance, this king would not rule and act and speak and adjudicate in those ways. Actually, this is what this king would be like. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Nor will he decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is a leader whose judgments will not be influenced by appearances. This is a leader whose judgments will not be based upon rumors and hearsay or opinion polls. And don't think that when it says that he shall kill the wicked as though he's going to be some kind of a bloodthirsty tyrant. No. This is a king who will level the playing field. That's, where the, that's what the word equity means. It means to make everything level. This is a king who is going to level the imbalance between the wicked and powerful and the poor and meek. Because as it says in verse 5, this is a king who is basically clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. That's what he wears. That's what he's robed in. Faithfulness and righteousness. So as Isaiah is saying, finally, finally a leader that we could believe in. David's heir, and yet greater than David. That was Isaiah's hope. That God springs from the bleakest of circumstances the sweetest redemption. And that has always been the hope of the Bible and the Christian hope. And look, this is not just a history lesson. It's not just about the history of Christmas. It's about the attitude of Christmas. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Not the facts. They're very important. I want to talk to you about the attitude of Christmas. Not the culture or the traditions. They're all fine. The attitude of Christmas. If you're a Christian, the, the, the Christian as a way of life hopes in God. It's not something that goes and co comes and goes seasonally once or twice a year on the big holidays, the big events in the church calendar. As a Christian, hope is a way of life. Hoping beyond what you see. Hoping, as the book of Hebrews says, hoping beyond hope that God will act in the bleakest of circumstances. No matter what it looks like, the Christian hopes. And, 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 and this is not like a feel-good kind of thing. It is a discipline. The Christian hopes. 
And hope allows us to reframe the narrative of whatever we're living through. I'm not talking about changing the facts. Think of everything that's gone on in our society. Just think of what's going on in your own life or in your family this year alone. I'm not, I'm not talking about changing the facts, but rather hope, Christian hope, allows you to reframe the story, the narrative. So for example, 2020 has been rough. That's an understatement, right? But are we going to respond in hope? Or are we going to, to, to respond in despair? I can't think of a better way, I, I can't think of a better way to end this year than celebrating Christmas. How great is it that we don't celebrate it in the middle of the year? I mean, we get to end the year celebrating Christmas. History shows us that plagues and polarization and injustice and misinformation, everything that we've been seeing, is the norm. It, it's, it's not the things that happen once in a while. Read your history books. Talk to most people living in most centuries, and frankly, most people living on the planet right now. These things are the norm. Darkness is everywhere, but God breaks through it. God breaks into it like, like we've sung, like a rose that springs up in the middle of the dark, cold winter. Why do, we, why do we have to accept the narrative that 2020 was the worst year ever? Why do we have to accept that? From what vantage point? You probably, most of you in the room, probably have never seen the movie from the early 1990s, City Slickers, star, starring uh, Billy Crystal. I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. It's a comedy. You may never watch it. And if you never watch it, this is the only thing you need to remember about City Slickers. Because <laughs> there's a point where, where it just, there's a great lesson. These are friends who have gone out west uh, to just kind of get back to the basics. They're all stressed out, living city life, and they go on this big, you know, cattle driving outdoor exploration. And these three friends are getting back to basics and just sharing life with one another. And at one particular moment, they begin sharing stories about their best and worst days ever. Right? So, so they, they, they share. They go, what was your best day ever? Okay. And what was your worst day ever? And this is what they share. And one of the guys, the last story is this. One of the guys describes his best day ever. Listen to this. He basically says, this is a paraphrase, my best day ever was when I was about 15 years old and I, I stood up to my father, who was a terrible guy. He stood up to my father and I told him, you need to leave us. I'm going to take care of mom and my sister. He said, on that day I vowed to take care of my mother and my sister and my dad walked away. That was the best day of my life. <laughs> and, and one of the friends says, well, <laughs> then what was your worst day? And he said, the same day. Maybe 2020, with a little bit of reflection, and by exercising our faith, can be reframed as the worst, best year some of us, some of you, have ever had, or have had in a long time, or may have in a while. Maybe we can reframe it as this is the worst, best time we've experienced. 
where we learn to be realistic about the world in which we live, where we learn to be realistic about people and human nature, and where we learn to be realistic about ourselves, but became confident in God's promises. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about us. We are jars of clay. We, we hold this amazing eternal truth of God's salvation in, in jars of, of clay, these feeble, broken, sinful lives of ours. He says jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. If you are a Christian, you discover that your worst times are your best times. Why? Because you discover in your weakness that God shows up. If you have been following Christ long enough, you know that it is true. In your worst moments, He has shown brighter. He, he has felt, you have felt closer to Him. You have known His goodness and that He is real and that He is true and that He is faithful more in your weakest moments. It, it is in those times of the bleakest, darkest despair that He has a way for just showing up and surprising you. So that we can agree with the Apostle Paul also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because Jesus has said to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. Echoed by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So hope, right? That's the takeaway today. If you're a Christian, hope, whatever darkness you're enduring, hope in God's coming restoration. That's what we see in the birth of Christ. That's what we see in Scripture's announcement of His second coming, as real as His first coming, that we cling to God's promises in the bleakest of situations. So reframe the narrative. Okay, Regardless of what you hear the pundit saying, regardless of what NPR is saying, what Fox News is saying, what CNN is saying, regardless of what the Associated Press is telling you, what you're reading in the news feeds and, and in the social media handles of the people, the influencers that you follow and you listen to, to, whatever they're saying, fine. Just put it in perspective. God gave you a brain, use it. He gave you the gift of faith, exercise it, and reframe the narrative based on the promises of God. That's what the Christian does. Refrain the story based on the promises of God. And that's what you see Isaiah doing in the bleakest of situations. It's what Paul did again and again and again. It's what Christians around the world have been doing every year. We've just woken up to it. So we frame the narrative based on the promises of a God who shows up and does amazing things when everything seems bleak and dark and dead. 
Sometimes the role of a believer, like Isaiah, is to be a witness among doubters. Sometimes that's as simple as what we're called to do. Be a witness of hope among people who refuse to be comforted. Like Ahaz, I want to ask you, like Ahaz, have you been refusing to be comforted by hope? Have you refused to be guided by the truth? If you go back a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 7, we discover that Isaiah invited the king to ask God for a sign. He said, ask God for a sign. Let God show you what He's going to do. Let Him knock your socks off. Let Him tell you how He's going to get you out of this pickle, Ahaz. And Ahaz refused. He said, I will not ask. And then He he covered his lack of faith with really spiritual sounding language. He said, I will not put the Lord God to the test. And then Isaiah said, all right, well, guess what? You want to hear it? God's going to tell you anyway. He's going to do something amazing. You don't want to hear it? Well, here it is. The virgin is going to give birth to a child, and we're going to call his name God with us. Take that for one. But like Ahaz, have you refused to be comforted? Are you brooding on what discourages you about humanity? Are you you focusing on what discourages you about bad leadership? Are you brooding in despair? about what discourages you about yourself. Friend, don't misunderstand me. Grief is appropriate. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. But why? Because they will be comforted. And even moderated anger is appropriate. But doubt sees only the negative. And then you can't see the roses in the snow. And that's what Christmas is. In this world, Christmas is a rose in the snow. And I will go as far as to say Christmas is the hope of the world. It literally is. Not Bing Crosby and Ho Ho Ho, and I love that stuff. That's great. It's just fun. It's just fun stuff. All right? But Jesus is the hope of the world, and that's that's what the Christmas message is. It's not just to say, yeah, we remember this is so important one month out of the year. This is our life. We live in the reality, in, 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 the, in, the, in the, what's the word? I'm, I'm missing it. I wrote it down somewhere here. In the paradox, that's the word. The Christian life is, is encapsulated in the, Christus, in the Christmas message. It is the paradox of living in hope despite how bleak things look. Right? Christianity, the Christian life, is a rose in winter paradox that says when I am weak, then I am strong. Because that's how God showed up. And that's what the Gospel is. And that's what Christmas announces. A leader who is, as the carol says, true man, yet very God. From sin and death, He saves us and lightens every load. This this echoes what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the virgin, upon her pregnancy. He said, the Lord God will give to this child who's going to be born to you the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the carol that we sang today goes on to sing, O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. 
You see, there's, there's His humanity. O Savior, King of glory, who does our weakness know. And there's His divinity. And see, this, this carol perfectly shows us what the angel said to Mary. That, that in a sense, this Jesus is a guide and a friend who is humble enough to sympathize experientially. He's walked through it. He's been through it before you went through it. He is able to sympathize experientially with your darkness. What a gift. And yet, He is a king and a leader who is awesome enough to shine light, to be the light in that darkness. That's what Christianity offers that no other faith system offers. The experiential sympathy with the awesome cosmic power to do something about that darkness that you know. And I just think it comes together beautifully in that old German carol. And more importantly, in the Gospels. Echoed by the prophet Isaiah who looked at a horrible situation and a do-nothing, lame leader. Your greatest hope is Jesus. And this may be the most important Christmas yet. Hope in the darkness. Because Jesus is God's answer. To Ahaz, to me, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't want to hear it. He gave it to me anyway. Oh, you don't want to listen to me? Here you go. You're going to have it anyway. That's the hope. We're not looking for it, and God shows up in the fullness of time and does something beautiful for those who didn't want His help. But Christmas speaks to us, doesn't it? Christmas sings bright hope in the darkest of our despair. It's a rose in winter. The Gospel is bright hope in darkness. The good news of a Savior for you. And I think Christmas, and if you live this way, Christmas lifts us from a see-what's-going-on type of an attitude to a hope in what's coming mindset. That's the paradox of the Christian life. So aspire today and for 2021 too and for the rest of your life and, and, and please catch on and join us in following this Jesus. Aspire to hope. Whatever darkness you're enduring, inspire to hope in God's coming restoration. His very precious promises. And get serious about celebrating Christmas. I mean it. Right? They don't call it the 12 days of Christmas for nothing. Use it up. Do it all. Epiphanies like in the beginning of January. So celebrate every day. Come up with excuses to have a good time. Even if you're stuck in your house. Even if you have nothing. Something. Sing. Call somebody on the phone and sing to them. Just enjoy it. Make it 12 days of Christmas. Make it, make it last into 2021. Get serious about celebrating Christmas. And I'll close by stealing uh, and misappropriating the words of Dylan Thomas. Don't, do not go gently into that good night of 2020. Rejoice. Rejoice in the coming of the light. Let's pray. Our Father, in faith and in thanksgiving, we will not despair. We will not give up. We will not lose hope. We will cling to You. We will cling to hope itself. Father, we, we, are, we are beaten down. 
We are perplexed. In some ways, we and definitely our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted. But you have overcome the world. So we ask for the faith. We ask for the courage. We ask for the peace of mind. We ask, we ask for the reasonableness to reframe the narrative of our lives. To reframe the narrative of this year according to your nature and your character. Not the leaders we see, but the leader you provided in Jesus Christ. May He be our light of lights. Very God a very God, although man of man. Father, fill us with the hope that Jesus Christ brought and may it carry us through in great expectation of His next coming. Father, I pray that this Christmas, whether we have a lot or very little, whether we've had a decent year or a horrible year, I pray that this Christmas would be different, that we would see it as a way to say we will not give up, we will not lose hope, we will keep Jesus at the center of our story and find our true hope in Him. May it be so. Amen.